Hi, welcome to We Are the Weirdos Auntie G, a podcast by Weirdo Zine and Collectors. My name is Z Ahmed, and I'm a writer for Weirdo's website covering all things punk, music, and culture. Weirdo exists to document and celebrate the experiences, perspectives, and contributions of South Asian people in alternative subcultures around the world. We do this through our print zine, articles on our website, events, and sharing people's stories on this podcast. In each episode of We Are The Weirdos on TG, we interview a South Asian creative to find out about their journey in the alternative scene and their career to date. So today's guest is Urva Khan. Urva is a Canadian-Pakistani musician based out of Toronto, Canada. With over 14 years as an independent artist, Urva has gained a global following through her captivating online performances and live shows. Her unique story and music have reached millions, earning recognition from prestigious outlets like the BBC, CBC, Vice, and SportsCenter LA. She's known for her fierce onstage presence and has independently toured and mesmerized audiences in Toronto, Baltimore, Los Angeles, the UK and Pakistan since 2009. So welcome to the podcast, Urba. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, thank you for being part of it. So just to dive right in, I'm curious to know, you were born in Karachi, Pakistan and arrived in Canada with your family as a teenager. So what was that like? And did you always show signs of being a music kid or a music baby? Uh, so I was born in Pakistan. I was there for a very short while before my family removed to Abu Dhabi. So I was pretty much in Abu Dhabi before I moved to Canada. Uh, my parents did encourage us kids to like go into speech meets and stuff like that, but never music. Uh, you know, most brown parents don't put that on the table as an option. So that being said, music was something that found me in my early 20s. And it has been a beautiful journey since then. And when you moved to Canada, what was, li- was, what was it like growing up as a South Asian person in the Canadian music scene and I'm, I'm assuming the 2000s? Moving to Canada from the East was very difficult. Like there's this cultural clash that you're not prepared for, especially families, right? So obviously that was something that was very difficult to deal with. But I feel like stuff like that is what gave me ammo to like in the future write about, rap about. And as far as the music industry is concerned, it's been a tough journey for me because I started my career as a rapper. And very quickly, I got really into rock music. Like I fell in love with live instruments. And I felt like at the start, I wouldn't get bookings because all the rap venues will be like, oh, your guitars are too loud. And the rock venues will be like, yeah, but you're not rock because you're rapping. So as a South Asian woman, I wasn't fitting anywhere, right? So I just decided to kind of not try and fit in, just kind of create my own sound and truly make music for myself and people who were like me. Because like growing up, I never heard brown women rapping or making rock music. I wasn't even into rock music growing up because I thought it was for white kids. You know, I grew up listening to like, Bollywood stuff like A.R. Rahman, like, you know, the 90s and like Battery Boys, Spice Girls, very, very basic in the Western way, but like very into A.R. Rahman. He's a musical genius. I love his work. 
So that being said that once I moved to Canada and like once I started rapping, I was able to understand rock music on a deeper level than I had the impression of. So once I was around a live band and I heard their energy, I was like, I wanted that. So I started studying rock music and I started, started studying of about how liberating it is and how every time in history there was a group of people, a bunch of kids with something to say, rock and roll was used to like, you know, bring about revolution. So I'm like, I'm game for that, you know, let's let's make some rock music, some rap music that like, you know, brown girls like me would want to listen to. So it's been fun, you know, it's fun having full control over your creativity and being able to do what you want to and not worrying about what people think or what sells. So I'm privileged in that manner, you know, that I've I've had that since the start of my career and I'm very blessed for that. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Air Rahman, which a lot of South Asian kids can probably relate to in terms of the first sort of musical influences they've had. But um, can you tell me a bit more about some of your rock influences in your sort of early days in Canada? So I didn't listen to rock music when I first got to Canada, cool. So I, when I became a rapper, it was like about 14 years ago in 2009. It was like my first gig. So once I met this band, I was like, okay, I want this. I want this live sound, this li- live energy. And I'm like, yeah, I want to make rock music. And my band members at that point were like, you can't just get up and become a rocker. You got to understand rock. It's like a culture. You got to study it. So I remember back then, HMV was a big thing. I walked into a store and decided to get a CD. And um, my, the first CD I laid my eyes on was this black and red cover of Black Sabbath. It was just a compilation of the various hits. But I just loved the black and red. At that point, I remember picking up the CD and going like, oh, these guys probably scream a lot. I'm not going to understand what they're saying. And I took it home and like I put it on. And the first song I heard was NIB, Nativity in Black. So once I had been around uh, Western culture and this time around when I listened to Black Sabbath and I heard Nativity in Black, you should check it out. It's an awesome song. I was able to hear the air of Rahman in it. I was able to hear the cinematic aspect of it the Bollywood, the drama, and like, you know, the lyrics, and it was, it was beautiful, it was theatrical. And like, you know, it's like something had opened up within me. And that was the start to like me just researching more rock bands. So my earliest influence was definitely Black Sabbath. I love Tony Iommi, the guitarist from Black Sabbath. Um, Worship the ground he walks on, he's like the best. So after Black Sabbath, obviously I got more into Beatles, Rolling Stones. I like really, really love Beatles. As a rapper who learned to sing, I learned to song right from the Beatles. And just studying their history about Harrison, going back to India, working with Ravi Shankar. And like, you know, it was just like a gold mine for me to explore because there was so much, right? And even till today, there's so much I don't know, right? So that's the beauty of coming from two different cultures. You always have a lot of material to explore and take inspiration from. And then apart from that, like, you know, coming into more, like, I don't listen to like super modern music. I think 90s is where it ends for me. So like, I was really into like Nirvana, System of a Down, mostly bands from the 60s and 70s, you know, The Doors, Beatles. As a student of rock and roll, studying all these bands, like reading their stories, seeing their journeys really inspired me. And I think the more I studied these legendary acts, I always found that like, you know, all of them had trouble past 
and all of them were looking for an outlet and everyone's trying to prove something and no matter like you know how much an artist says they do like it when they get accepted you know and it was just very cool to see how people have dealt with their lives dealt with what they went through and are able to put into music that people can relate to you know and i guess that is the biggest thing i've learned from rock bands no absolutely and when you were a teenager you know sort of discovering all of this did you find yourself doing it on your own did you find yourself as part of a group of people that were also doing similar things or is it very much an individual journey that you sort of went through yeah no i'm kind of like a loner it's been a it's been a solo journey <laughs> you feel me but it's good though as i said like i like it that way i just have so much to say and like you know Obviously, I have friends in the music industry now and stuff, but like I started from scratch. Like I legit started from scratch. I remember I used to do open mics like three, four days a week and just post pictures and people would think they were my shows where they're just open mics, you know? And I just kept hitting those open mics week after week after week. And that's how I think I've kind of perfected my live performance and I'm able to give it so much energy because there's just so many hours of practice that's gone into it. To a point where if I had a show tomorrow, I don't think my band and I even have to rehearse. We can just go on stage and like, you know, we have our set unlock. A lot of dedication, a lot of hard work. And time flies though. Like, you know, I've been a musician for 14 years and I look back, I'm like, where did the last 14 years go, you know? No, absolutely. And you've um, managed to sort of really establish yourself um, in the scene as well. But let's go back to like your first open mic. Um, how were you feeling, if you can remember? Were you nervous? Yeah, so my first open mic, my first gig, the first time I stepped on stage was not an open mic. It was, I had kind of worked on this song with a rapper and it was his show. And I hadn't even stepped into a studio. So I was just kind of coming on as a feature artist. It was on October 18, 2009. And I had never held a mic before. I had never been in front of an audience. And I remember I went on stage and I cuffed the mic. So my sound sounded like this because I had cuffed the mic because I didn't know how to hold the mic. And then the lights were so bright that I kept looking down. So I was like rapping like this because the lights were just so bright. I couldn't, I didn't understand what to do. And then like, you know, but I was going hardcore with my rap. So it just kind of like, kind of looked lame. It didn't make sense what was going on, right? Because it just looked like, it looked amateur. So anyways, after that, like, you know, the person who booked the main rapper ended up still offering me a gig for like a real gig. And at that point, I was just like, what should I do? So I went on YouTube and I like looked up Eminem's performances and I would see how he would hold the mic, his swag on stage, and then I'll play his songs and pretend to be him. Like legit, like, you know, whatever he would say. And I would see how he would look into the audience, no matter how bright the light is. So now, like, you know, I know that like when you're on stage, the lights are bright. People are just shadows, but you got to still look out there, you know? So those are things that I learned from just like watching other artists perform. And like, you know, I would legit just go on YouTube and be like live performance skills, you know? And it, you'll see artists talking about live performance skills. And that's how I got better. So my second show was way better than the first one. Oh, that's really interesting. So completely self-made and self-learned. Yeah. And... I know that a lot of your narrative is about sort of reconciling your Muslim traditions with Western culture. You know, reading up on you, I see that you have your hybrid form of rock that you call scrap. So can you tell us a bit more about that? So like, 
as much as I've studied rock and roll, right? Rock and roll comes in waves. And for the longest time, I believe rock is dead, especially in the West. And it's because we have our freedom. We can do whatever we want to do. So there's not much to say here. So in a way, rock and roll died. Like, you know, for me, like post grunge is where it kind of like ended. And I wanted to create create the next wave of rock that belonged to like brown kids, Middle Eastern kids, kids who come from where I come from. So I basically wanted to make a new wave of rock. And before I used to call my music Rock Meets World. And then a music exec told me that if you wanted to create something new, it can't be something that exists. It has to be something that never existed. And I felt like because rock is dead, but everything is done, there's nothing you can do that hasn't been done. I We're just picking up the scraps of what was left behind. And that's what my, my music is. It uses rock and everything rock stands for as its base. But it also has a lot of South Asian influence. And it also has a lot of soca calypso rap like you know just various elements to it and that's what scrap rock is that's a really interesting story about how you came up with the name um and when you told your music exec or people around you how did they receive that did they think it was a great idea did they think oh my god or no no at first people like oh scrap that sounds like crap but i'm like but that's 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 all that's left out there so let's just add to it scrap can be crap i really don't mind you know i think sometimes in life like uh, when ideas come to you when things speak to you you should just go for it i genuinely believe that like you know great ideas come to us and then if we don't listen to them or we silence them then that voice will get smaller and smaller so i'm really good at like listening to any idea that comes to me i'll just act on it that voice is so loud for me so yeah I, I wasn't going to back down once I came up with that, you know? I'm like, everything happens for a reason. And yeah, it's kind of like become like a sort of a brand at this point with Scrap Rock evolving into Scrap Fest as a festival that features more weirdos and queerdos like me. I think we've spoken so far about your journey into becoming, you know, a musician in Canada. And I think quite recently or maybe in 2016, I don't know if we can call that recent anymore, um, you went back to Pakistan as well, a little more established as a musician. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So I started making music in 2009. And in 2013, I felt like I needed to evolve and I needed to learn. And I didn't want to take Western vocal lessons because I don't want to be like everyone. So I started taking classical Indian vocal lessons completely different from what I was doing at that point. I could barely speak in Urdu. I had just shut out that part of me for so long. Like, you know, I would not speak in Urdu, didn't really hang around with much Pakistani people. I just wanted to be me apart from what I was born as, you know, I wanted to find myself outside of that. But like, you know, in 2013, as I wanted to grow, I knew that I had to, this would set me apart, taking these vocal lessons and hopefully it will help me grow as a musician because classical Indian music is very, very difficult. And even if I suck at it, I'll be better than where I was when I was where I started, you know? So that was my thinking that this will just toughen me up. So I took those lessons for about three years and it really ignited the passion within my heart to go back to Pakistan and like kind of revisit everything I ran away from. You know, I really, once I was in Canada and I had my own life, I didn't want to be a Pakistani. I didn't want to be a Muslim. I didn't want to be these things that were assigned to me at birth. Like, you know, I just wanted to find myself outside of those 
boxes and um and then years later taking these classical indian vocal lessons i'm just like did i make a mistake or is there something i left behind or maybe i should go back and like just see where i come from maybe it will clarify like i was trying to find myself at that point i was still on the journey of finding myself so i went to pakistan in 2016 and quickly discovered that there were no women doing what i was doing so i'm like wow god so you created me to do this like you know you created me to come here and disturb some serious shit so i'm like okay i was there for three weeks and then i decided to come back to canada work hard save money for like six seven months and then i moved to pakistan for four months and it was crazy like it was like very it was really really hard because i like bit more than i could chew off like mentally emotionally i wasn't like that strong and since then every time i've gone to pakistan things that i go through just make me stronger and stronger and stronger so um yeah when i returned for six months in 2016 and lived out there i networked within the independent community i put up a lineup of um, pakistani musicians who performed with me and in january of 2017 i did my debut performance independently in karachi and after that i returned back to canada and then just like i felt lost because now i've had a taste of that and then i'm in canada living my real life like you know and then I decided that, like, you know, I had such a tough time getting a venue. I had such a tough time finding collaborators. The independent industry was just, like, driven by rich boys. And, like, uh, it was just very difficult for me to get my step in or do anything, even as a foreigner. Like, you know? So then I decided that what if I created a platform called Scrap Fest? And, like, you know, actually, that was one of the things that I wanted to create a platform for Pakistan. And while I was in Pakistan... I ran into a couple of trans women once when I was in a rickshaw and I didn't know they're trans and they're like uh, begging for money. And I was like, I'm not going to give you money, but I'm going to go eat food with my cousin there but so you guys can come over. So there was two of them and six of them showed up. And then I'm asking them, why are you begging? Because you're so pretty. You could be like a model or an actress. And they're like, we're transgender. And I'm like, and? And they're like, oh, so like we can't work. We're only allowed to beg and prostitute because there's no financial infrastructure in place to support the trans community. And for my Canadian brain, it was like, Pfft. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you're being forced to, like, beg and prostitute. I'm like, I couldn't believe that human beings would do that to human beings. So at that point, there was this really desire in my heart to, like, do something for them. And uh, I felt like as a musician, the only thing I could do would, was create a platform. And after having faced the difficulty that I faced getting my, st my step into the industry, I decided that I want to make a festival called Scrap Fest where I would have trans women as my headliners. So they will be given the same respect other musicians get. So I was kind of like creating a scene, you know, a scene that didn't exist, which would bring together queer, trans, minorities, and just have an event that just featured all the minorities, but was headlined by the women who were not allowed to work and have education and have basic rights. I was going to prioritize them. And yeah, in 2018, I went back to Pakistan. My dream failed. Everybody thought I was crazy. Everybody's like, yo, they'll, your venue is going to be set on fire. And then everybody just backed up. They're like, this girl is crazy. Like, you know, we're all going to die because of her. And then I was like very depressed, came back to Canada. And I'm like, oh, I can't believe I couldn't do it. So in 2019, I decided to launch Scrapfest in Canada, in Mississauga. And there was just three artists, myself, a drag queen, and another artist. And that was the launch of Scrapfest. And then COVID happened. And then in 2021, I decided to go back to Pakistan again and give it a try. And this time I was able to launch Scrapfest. 
and I did two events successfully underground and which led us to our first public event, like a festival type event that was supposed to happen at a park in Pakistan this year on February 4th. But a couple of days before the event was supposed to happen, a provincial high court revoked my permits and in a way put a ban on my event. And it was straight out because they're transphobic. They couldn't stand that in Pakistan, they would like make money rain on these women. But I was giving that same money to them in an envelope with respect. And they are okay with me doing it behind closed doors. They just don't want that to be public, which is the hypocrisy of it. You feel me? So I feel like Scrapfest has been very controversial, but I think it's good. Scrapfest is also a platform where people can have a conversation. And, you know, I'm going back to Pakistan in two weeks and we're going to try and pull another event and we're going to keep at it, you know. And yeah, that's the story of Scrapfest. Yeah, congratulations. I mean, on making an attempt to do so because I know there's a lot of legal implications, a lot of societal ones that can stand against you and you're really fighting the odds there. You find that a lot with sort of mixed culture kids um, who live abroad or move abroad from the South Asian subcontinent um, trying to bring back that freedom or that taste of freedom um, back to their culture. And it's interesting to see that you're still pushing on, so that's great. And I really hope that, you know, it continues to go in a positive direction. And I think the more you push on, you'll have more people sort of sign up or be a part of it. Yeah, exactly. Like, I remember from, like, the first time I, like, thought of this idea was in, like, 2017. And, like, you know, where the events at, the folks that are involved, all my friends, like, you know, trans activists, politicians, and it's just... It's an awesome journey. I've definitely made a lot of good friends on the way. And it feels good because I'm no longer doing it alone. I believe that you also sort of were actively participating or um, introduced Muslim Pride in Toronto. Um, do you want to maybe tell some of our listeners about that? Yeah, definitely. In 2020, I decided, came up with this idea of Muslim Pride. I'm like, hey, this really doesn't exist. And like, you know... I mean, it exists, like, what is Muslim pride technically, right? Muslims have been advocating for their rights within the queer and trans community for a very long time. So, like, this Muslim pride is definitely not the first because there's been a lot of things that can be categorized as Muslim pride but was never advertised as, right? So what I wanted to do, once again, as a musician, as an artist, was to create a platform that would prioritize and showcase queer and trans Muslims, artists, to show that we exist, you know, so in 2020, I sat down with the Islamic Studies Department at the University of Toronto, and they co-funded this event with me. It was an online event because it was mid-COVID, so it made it kind of easier for me to search and feature international artists. We had, I think, about like 12 or 13 artists from like drag kings, drag queens, poets, musicians. So it was pretty cool. It was a nice way to build this uh, online community of like, you know, a bunch of queer trans Muslim folks who came together. So yeah, uh, in 2021, we expanded Muslim Pride to making it a three-day festival, had more departments, more artists. I think we ended up featuring about 24 queer and trans Muslim artists from all over the world. 2022, it became very difficult for me to handle it because I had just come back from doing scrap scrapist in Pakistan in 2021. So we decided to take a break for a year because I think we were at that spot where we needed to go live. And 
I just had so much going on and it just is a huge step to take Muslim pride live. And because of all the controversy around scrap as in Pakistan, there was just like a lot of fear. 2022, I decided to take a break. So 2023 this year, we decided to go live and uh, it was awesome. It was, we got together about like 16 or 18 queer and trans Muslim artists from Toronto. And we had a great night of fun, you know, um, burlesque, drag, musicians, spoken word artists, singers. It was something very beautiful. And for everyone who was there, they felt it. It's like we had Muslims of all color, shapes and sizes, and everyone was in that room. And when for people first came in, I remember being backstage and looking out, people looked so scared, like nobody knew what to expect, right? Like some people were thinking it was going to be a dance party. Some people were thinking, okay, there's going to be performances. So it was uh, really nice. You know, we finally got to go live with Muslim Pride. Uh, and then, yeah, we hope to do more events with Muslim Pride. We're expanding into Montreal next year. So we'll definitely have an event at um, Montreal Pride next year as well. So yeah, it's just one of those things. Sometimes you just got to, as I said, you got to listen to every little idea that comes to your heart, right? Because if you try, it just might become true. No, absolutely. And I'm really curious to know how you feel when you're like looking at this take place or when you're looking at these people on stage that you've sort of curated these artists to come together and just celebrate each other and identity and freedom. How are you feeling about this? Um, it's very difficult for me to feel anything while everything's going on because there's just so much pressure and there's just so many things going on. So I'm also like, I'm the artist, so I'll perform, but I'm also the organizer. And like, you know, and like, I'm a part of like running stuff the day of the event. I'm a part of the marketing. There's a lot of things I'm part of. So like a lot of times I'm just like in autopilot, just getting stuff done. And then uh, for me, the main goal is I want to treat my artist the way I wasn't treated. So... I don't think about how I feel. I make sure that my artists feel good. I make sure they're fed. I make sure they're paid. I make sure they're happy. Because I had complaints as an artist being in Toronto. And the complaints that I had as an artist, I want to make sure that I as an organizer make sure my artists don't feel that. So for me, respecting my artists is important. When my artist is happy, when the audience is happy, then I'm happy. But like, you know, when stuff like um, that, like Scrapfest in Pakistan, when the permits got revoked and stuff it was a very uncomfortable moment for me it became like chaos and like uh there was a secure there was security threats on like my friends myself it was you know because we still decided to go through with the event we filmed it and we uh put it online for everyone to watch so basically we're gone secret in hiding and like you know had to just do all this crazy stuff like you know that now when I look back, like it was just very scary. So at those times you're just like scared and you're I guess what you're more scared about is if something happens to someone, it's all my fault. You feel me? If somebody dies or something happens and like, you know, like if somebody does anything, then it's my fault. And that is very difficult. That is something new that I've been exposed to since this year and something that's very difficult. But like I'm trying to come to terms with it that it is a political thing that I'm doing in Pakistan and I just got to protect myself and roll with the punches. So I'm, I'm not going to like struggle to find happiness in doing what I'm doing in Pakistan because half the time I'm scared, but I still do what I'm supposed to do. Cause I tell myself, it's okay if you're scared or but, but just do what you have to do, you know? So like a lot of time people are like, Oh, you're so strong. You're so brave. And I'm like, no, I'm actually really weak and really scared. But the difference between me and a weaker person is even though I'm scared, I'm going to do it, you know? 
So yeah, in Pakistan, there's a lot of things on my mind. But this year with Muslim Pride, I was really happy because everyone was happy. And it was a nice change from what I went through in Pakistan. It was a complete opposite. So it was nice. It was the boost that I needed. So I was like, praise God. Thank you for protecting us. <laughs> yeah, with the political aspects of what you've mentioned, you are essentially using music as a form of activism or to sort of create change. Do you think that you look up to other artists that do that as well? Or do you think there needs to be more of that? I think there is a lot of artists who share their story, right? For me, as I said, like I, my goal isn't to be political. My goal is to share my story. And I want to, as an organizer, as a musician, I want to create a scene where people are treated the way I want to be treated as an artist and where organizers are giving equal opportunity to people from minority groups. That is something that needs to be done. We have to prioritize people who haven't been treated right. They have to be put on the top of the ladder. That's what I keep my focus on when I'm doing what I'm doing. I feel like we've spoken a lot about what's visible to audiences or the outside about your music and, you know, your your brand. Uh, but I'm curious to also know about your creative process and how you make a song. And I know you recently opened for Biz Naked. Um, you know, tell us about how you felt then and how Canadian Music Week was for you. Yeah, so Biff Naked, that's awesome. Because I remember seeing Biff Naked on TV like about like like 20 years ago. And Biff Naked is Canadian. She's a white woman who was born in India. And she was adopted and brought over to Canada. So she has this connection to the South Asian community. And, you know, it's crazy when you see someone on TV. And I remember watching her on TV and I was kind of disappointed that she didn't have any tablas or any like brown people instruments. Because I'm like, but then in my head, I remember watching her on TV and going like, if there's a white Indian girl making rock music, a brown rocker chick is around the corner. And then it was crazy when she got in touch with me because she's like, yeah, that's you. You're that brown rocker chick. Like, you know, so it was just very like mind blowing and she was very humble and she's so kind. And, you know, honestly, after being a musician for so long, it's so validating to have a rock icon, like tell you that you're like so important and like the work you're doing is so important. And for someone to finally understand you, I've never had the privileges that a lot of Western bands have, such as going on big tours or having a committed band. I have always been independent and like always has session players and it's like it's my business it's my brand I'm running it and it's, it's shocking like you know like there are no sponsors there are no brand names you know and um it was really nice to just be appreciated by someone who I saw on tv like you know someone who is a rocker chick someone who I did look up to and like you know be like wow like that that girl's cool like you know just the story is cool what she's Indian like you know so my creative process uh, is pretty much, I write a lot of songs, I feel a lot of things, and uh, the exact technical process is I write my melodies and my lyrics first. That is the first thing that's ever written, the wording and the melody. And then I sit with my guitarist, we come up with the guitar chord structure, and then we get a whole band in. So the basics is obviously the songwriting first. Uh, some artists, sit with their band and create the whole song together. I like to just be by myself so I can feel my what I'm trying to write about. So I usually draw inspirations from like things I've been through. 
uh like you know i'll start a song thinking about a feeling someone made me feel and like the same feeling how someone else made me feel and then take that feeling and be like how can i kind of put it in a manner where someone else can relate to that feeling you know i wrote a lot of songs about wanting to be free and like you know just my journey and stuff and that's something i'm good at expressing myself and because i go to pakistan and i go through so much i always have content <laughs> you know i'm never gonna run out of things to say i think writing is so important that is the first step in anything even when i decide to make a festival anything i do the first thing i do is put my pen to my pad you got to put it on paper you got to make it real you know so as a musician i know a lot of people write songs on their phone and stuff i record like hummings on my phone but i have all my songs on papers like you know all of them my whole career and yeah it gives you something to go back to and kind of like complete a whole song and yes, yeah, a fun process. Yes, and you've been doing this for 14 years. Is Has there been any point where you found it challenging creatively to go on? Or have you felt this sort of creative drop for a certain period, maybe during COVID? I worked with my ex-guitarist for about 11 years. And I recently stopped working with him mid-COVID. And I've been working with a new guitarist. It was a, a very difficult relationship. Being a woman in the music industry is not easy. I would say like my creativity was being hindered. As a musician, work with someone for so long and it's someone that you look up to and it's somebody that like, you know, you've learned from. It's difficult for them to understand when, you know, you need your own space and there can be too many chefs in the kitchen at the same time, right? So yeah, there was a time period in my life where I really struggled with my ex-guitarist and really struggled. And it was very difficult to finally make the decision to leave him because I started my rock career with him. He was the first guitarist I ever worked with. He taught me to sing. He taught me so much cool stuff about rock and roll. But at the end of the day, I had to make a decision that was good for me. And I had to be respected in the manner that I wanted to be respected. And the truth is being a brown woman in a male-dominated industry, especially a white male-dominated industry, is not easy. And, you know, I had to fight for myself and I had to love myself and tell myself that I was someone without him, that he was a part of my story, not the whole story, against what he believes, like, you know. And once I broke ways with him, I went through a hard time because I thought I was a shitty singer. I thought that I was just like a half-assed rapper. There's all these things that he has said that like, you know, were sitting within me. And I remember when I started working with my new guitarist and I wanted to sing a song and like, you know, I was like, I, I couldn't even write because I was so depressed and so like broken. Like I was broken over the years, you know? And I remember I told him that I wanted to cover I Will Survive. And the first time I got into the studio to like, sing with him I couldn't and like when I did sing and he sent me my vocals back I'm like hey you did a good job at like uh there's this technique in audio production called melodyning and it doesn't change your voice it just if you hit a bad note it can fix that one note or like whatever you want it's not like auto-tune auto-tune is just too much but a production tool that producers and mixers and people who master music would have, uh, use a lot would be melodyne so I'm like, hey, you did a good job in melodying all my vocals. And he's like, I didn't. Those are your raw vocals. And I could not believe that my ex-guitarist had lied to me and told me that I was a bad singer and he was melodying all my vocals. 
And I was just like, you know, like, you know, and I think at that point, that is what I needed. I needed that one song without him to just prove to myself that I was someone without him. So as a musician, there are a lot of behind the scenes that people never see, right? Especially with musicians who've been around for so long. There's like, you have relationships with people, not romantic, but you have relationships and they get difficult. And at times, like, you know, you you got to protect what's yours and you got to protect what you want to do. And you got to stand up for yourself. And it's difficult. It's difficult when you have to stand up to the person who taught you most of what you know. But, you know, a lot of women do stand up for themselves. And then, you know, then you have to deal with all the shaming and blah, blah. But I think, you know, I did good. Because here I am working on my seventh album. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, we've spoken so much about how you established yourself as a musician, your journey, your activism, you know, how you're now sort of regaining your identity without your old guitarist. So it's been really interesting and... Yeah, coming to your seventh album, how is that going? It is going awesome. You know, honestly, the past three years with my new guitarist, my drummer's been working with me for about 10 years. I got a new bassist. He's half Scottish, half Pakistani, so I love him. He gets my sound, you know? And uh, my team is so awesome. Like, you know, like, they're, they're not toxic at all. Like, they're so awesome. Everyone respects me. We respect one another. I've been sober for 17 months, by the way. So that has also helped the dynamics of my music career. Like my last album kind of introduces my journey to Pakistan because I took a big break between 2015 and 2020, uh, just exploring Pakistan and I didn't put out any music. So I put out an album in 2020 and then I put out this album in 2023 this year. So these songs, because I'm always working on songs, people always hear what I'm going through two years later, you know? So the last album that came out this year actually captures the past few years, right? So this album I'm working on has like more current stuff, like, you know, uh, the journey that is happening in Pakistan right now and things I've been through recently. So yeah, it's exciting. I am really happy. I'm living my best life. And it's so awesome to just, you know, take those steps. At times people like we don't take steps because we're so comfortable in our misery and we're just like, oh, what happens if we leave? What happened? Blah, blah, blah. But honestly, just going for it and going for your happiness is so important, you know, because you got to you got to keep it positive for it to be sustainable, for you to want to keep it alive forever, especially if you're an independent artist. If there's people throwing money on your like, you know, there's millions of dollars being invested into you, you have time to be depressed, you know. But when you're independent, you just got to keep going. And yeah, I'm living my best life. I'm so happy. Now, that's so good to know. And um, just for context for some of our listeners, um, Urba released uh, her sixth album, YYZ2KHI, um, earlier this year. And based on what you just said, it covers um, your journey back to Pakistan and your experiences there. So definitely go and have a listen. It's been really great talking to you today, Urba. And as, as a sort of parting question, i just like to ask you if you have any advice for anybody looking to become big in the music scene in Pakistan or in Canada or just worldwide, and um, especially if it's um, a brown kid somewhere trying to make it big, do you have advice for them? Yeah, my advice would be don't be afraid to put out something and suck. 
when I first started making music, I, I, I used to put my stuff on MySpace and I still have those songs and you could hear the fire. You could hear someone who's passionate, but those are not professional songs. You feel me? But I needed those. And I made my first demo, which was like five songs, which I just took beats from the internet, from YouTube, just beats. And I rapped on them and I made five songs, just the beat and my vocals, took it to real producers, got with the team, you know, build a team around me and, um, don't be afraid to fail. I have failed so many times in my life, even with Scrap Fest. In a, in a way, it's success, but it's also a big setback, right? So don't be afraid to fail. Just go out there and do you. You'll only get better. So just don't be afraid to take the first step. And just whenever you have an idea or you have that little voice at the back of your head telling you to do something, listen to it. Because that voice will get louder when you listen to it. If you don't listen to it, it'll just quiet down. And the more you listen to that voice, the more you will practice doing what you're meant to do because the universe is speaking to you. So just listen to that voice and don't be realistic. Be crazy and go out there and do stuff. Even if you fail, it doesn't matter. You're writing your legacy. And the more you write, the more there'll be to read. Thank you. Um, I think that will really help some of our listeners to gain the confidence to start out if that's what's stopping them and you know thank you so much for chatting about all your experiences and your journey it's really incredible and thank you for being on our podcast and before we end though if there's anything i missed out of or if there's anything you'd like to drop in please feel free to do so i guess if there's something i could say would be the world is a very difficult place for trans folks at the mo moment. They're definitely being targeted. And anyone who's listening should connect with local organizations that they can support and support trans rights in any way that's possible because we're all human beings. And at the end of the day, our gender, our identities, these are not things that we should be judged upon or be treated different upon. There's power in conversation. There's power in numbers. So we need to continue the conversation so yeah, just go out there, talk to more people, connect with great folks and support trans artists as much as possible. Thank you for listening to We Are The Weirdos on TG, a podcast by Weirdo Zine Collective. Weirdo is a volunteer-run project that was created to document and celebrate the experiences, perspectives and contributions of South Asian people in alternative subcultures across the diaspora and Indian subcontinent. If you want to find out more about us, join our collective or support our work, visit our website weirdozine.com or follow us on Instagram at weirdo.zine. Mm -hmm.